You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. Uh, today we're going to be talking, like Josh said, about angels and demons. Uh, we're jumping into a new series. Josh approached me a few weeks ago to help us uh, begin this. And I'm not going to lie to you, I was a little nervous about it. This is a controversial subject. How many of you, when you hear the words angels and demons, you start tightening up a little bit, right? You start thinking of weird images like, you know, uh, uh, like chubby babies with little wings, you know, and halos. Start thinking of horned fawns running around with pitchforks, little things like that. And, you know, those images have just come into our culture, they've influenced our mind, we're aware of abuses of this, especially if you've grown up in the church, sometimes people have abused kind of angels and demons uh, in, in talking about it in the church, and so we're, we're kind of jaded towards this subject, it's really difficult, I remember a few years ago I saw a movie, I won't say what movie it was because it's not a good one, I wouldn't recommend watching it, but in the movie there is a scene where there's a young boy He's a teenager, and he wants to become a rock star. And so he writes a song about holding hands with a girl, and he plays it at a school talent show. But after the talent show, there is a preacher there in the town who gets really angry because this is rock and roll, and this is a violation. So he comes up to him, and he says, that song is of the devil. And he's like, what are you talking about? This song is just about holding hands. And he says, and you know who else has hands? The devil. And he uses them for holding See, that kind of abuse, it really has jaded us to talking about angels and demons. But I'm hoping today that I can give us just a little bit of doctrinal clarity around this topic, which so clearly is presented in Scripture. From page one all the way to the very last page of the Bible, angels and demons are present and active in the story of the gospel. And so we have to talk about them. We've got to learn about what do we mean when we talk about these beings. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles today to our main verse, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles, we have it up on the screen here. Now, uh, this book of the Bible, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. And this is what he says to the church near the end of his letter. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
Uh, this is a controversial subject. We, we know. We know. We know it. Here on staff, Josh knows it. I know it as a volunteer. It's difficult, but I want to encourage you guys today to keep your minds open and to really approach this topic with humility. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of one of those, you know, popular authors out there today, William Shakespeare? He's, yeah, he's kind of a big deal around. How many of you have read Hamlet or seen the play Hamlet? A lot of you. Uh, if you haven't, don't worry. I'm, I'm a literature teacher, but I'm not going to read you the whole play right now. But there is a really interesting scene at the very beginning of the play where Hamlet encounters a spirit. And it scares him. It scares some of the guards that it appears to. And Hamlet goes and tells his best friend in the play, Horatio, about the spirit. And Horatio refuses to believe him. Horatio is like, Hamlet, you're seeing things. I don't know what's going on. And then finally, while Hamlet and Horatio are together talking about it, the spirit reappears to them, terrifies Horatio. And Hamlet says to his friend, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I really want that to be the touchstone line for how we approach this topic. Be willing to say that there are more things in heaven and earth, church, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. In our petty philosophies we've developed over our tiny little bit of time here on earth, there is more there is more to our universe. So we need to be open to that more out there, okay? Now, uh, in this sermon, there is a lot to cover, and I really want to address it using three questions today. These are the three questions I want to answer for you. Number one, why should we believe that spiritual beings actually exist? Number two, what does the Bible tell us about spiritual beings? And number three, why should we care? Why is it even worth discussing over a many week-long series in a church? Why? What is the point? Well, let's start with that first question. You guys with me? We ready? More things in heaven and earth, yeah? Yes. Oh, good. I love it. All right, number one. Why should we believe that spiritual beings exist? Uh, I want to give you really mainly two reasons why we really should believe, even in the 21st century, that spiritual beings exist. The first is human experience, and the second is divine revelation in Scripture. Let's start with human experience, because this is easy for everyone to really get behind. It is one of the curious facts of history that no matter what culture you look at, in what time period, all over the world, every single culture has stories about encounters with spiritual beings. Every single one. In fact, the modern West, the 21st century West that we live in right now, is the first culture to ever on a wide scale even question whether or not there is a spiritual realm, realm that influences the physical realm that we live in. We're one of the first. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we're wrong. It just means that we should, with humility, take pause for a second. If millions of people throughout human history in widely different cultures have said, yes, there are spiritual beings and we have encountered them, 
maybe we should just hear them out. I'm not saying it's all true. I'm not saying every story is true, but we should hear them out. If you don't believe me, uh, I just have a list of a few examples from history. In Mesopotamia, one of the oldest civilizations in all of human history, they believed in the Gala, which were both evil and good spiritual beings that influenced their lives. In ancient China and in modern China even, they believe in Shen. In Japan, you have Shinto spirits, which influence people, they say. In Hinduism, they recognize that there are good spirits called asuras and evil spirits called devas. In Buddhism, they believe that there are good spirits called Mara and evil ones called Rakti. In the tribal religions of Nigeria, they believe in Eshu. In Islam, they believe in angels, demons, and then something else called jinn, which is where we get the word genie, by the way. And in North American native tribes, there is a common spiritual type of being called Wendigo that they recognize. Now, I'm not saying that all of the stories about these different spiritual beings are true. I'm just saying if there are so many in so many different cultures, let's be humble enough to say that maybe human beings are experiencing something outside of our own philosophy. Now, I want to explain today, why is it that in the West we have such a trouble with this? Why are we so unique? I'm sure you've heard this phrase before. This is commonly what you hear. Uh, science has disproven angels and demons. Science has disproven the supernatural. This is actually a really funny claim. I, it really is, and I'll explain why. If anyone ever tells you this in your everyday life, like, hasn't science disproven the supernatural? I, I want you to ask the person this question. Which science experiment are you referring to? I guarantee you no one will ever give you an answer. Which science experiment disproved that? Want to know why no one will ever give you an answer? It's because science has never, in the history of all science, there has never been an experiment that has said anything about the nature of the supernatural or of angels and demons or of God. And the reason is because the scientific method is developed to observe and study physical things. The whole methodology is built around physical matter. Now, if you have a methodology that studies physical things, how can it tell you anything that goes beyond what is physical? It doesn't have the tools or the methodology. Now, this is so fascinating in our culture that we use science kind of as a touchstone to say, oh, well, I can't believe in anything supernatural. That's, that's anti-science. That's anti-science. I would actually say to believe in the supernatural and to believe in supernatural beings like angels and demons is not anti-science. It's simply going beyond science. Because science can only address very specific questions. There are some questions about life and about our world that science has nothing to say about. Now, I, I want to preface this very clearly by saying, as Christians, we should be in favor of science of all kinds. Science is important. It is a trustworthy methodology. It is something that can help guide our lives in an important way. But all I'm saying is that it's limited. It can't answer every question.
And all of the greatest scientists have recognized this. I don't know if you guys know this, but science was discovered in a Christian culture. All of the greatest scientists throughout history happened to actually be Christians. The guy who developed the scientific method, Francis Bacon, was a Christian. So was Copernicus and Galileo, Isaac Newton. So was Blaise Pascal, the founder of calculus and modern mathematics. All of them recognize that science is important, but also there are things beyond science that can be discovered through different methodologies. Now, if you don't believe me, I just have two examples for you that I want to offer today. Uh, the first is if you were to try to explain to somebody the origin and the purpose behind the Ford motor car. Say you wanted to ask somebody about that. You could offer a scientific explanation for the Ford motor car. I could tell you all about the different physical materials that go into building that engine. I could tell you theories about the internal combustion engine and how it works and the mechanics and the physics of it all. And I could go into incredible detail, but I could also offer you a different explanation that doesn't go against the science, it goes beyond it. What if I told you that an explanation for the Ford motor car is Henry Ford? That's not a scientific observation. <laughs> Henry Ford and his mind, his building around this idea of creating the assembly line and uh, uh, building cars for everyday people, you can't explain that using science. It's, it's a different kind of question. Another one that I really love, uh, one of my favorite scientists in the world, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a nerd. I fangirl over scientists and researchers. One of my favorites, one of my favorites, is a scientist at Oxford University named John Lennox. And one day, he, he's a Christian, and one day he was having a debate with another physicist in his rooms in Oxford, and they were talking about this very question, can science tell us everything? And he went over and he put a pot of water on the stove and started heating it up, and he asked this physicist, he said, okay, so you say science can explain everything, Tell me why the water's boiling using science. Well, this man was an accomplished physicist. So he goes into all these deep explanations, talking about the way that the electrons are interacting with different electrons and how the atoms are bouncing off each other, and this huge explanation just to explain the science of how the water is boiling. And he was right about all those things. But then John Lennox, after waiting a long time patiently for about 10 minutes, listening to this long scientific explanation, said to him, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right, that's, that's how it's boiling, uh, but that's not why it's boiling. It's boiling because I wanted a cup of tea. <laughs> it's not a scientific explanation. It's something beyond science. It doesn't conflict, it goes beyond. So I, I want you guys, take that idea that Hamlet said to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. In fact, that whole idea that science has disproven the supernatural, that we can't think that way anymore in the modern world, is not uh, something that comes from science. It's actually a philosophical belief called materialism. Materialism is the belief that nothing other than the material world itself exists. You can't arrive at that conclusion using the scientific method. It takes a leap of faith. 
In fact, it's the opposite leap of faith that Horatio is told to take in that story of Hamlet. Instead of saying there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, materialism says there are less things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. It's not a very humble way of looking at the world. It isn't. Uh, to think that you actually know more than there actually is, it, not, it makes the world small. So, uh, th those are the reasons in terms of experience why I think we can probably say that angels and demons exist. But of course, we're Christians. And we look to the scriptures as our guide. And scripture so clearly reveals that angels and demons are a part of our lives. So the qu second question is what comes next here. What does the Bible tell us about spiritual beings? We recognize that they do exist, or at least possibly could. Well, what does the Bible say? Pastor Josh is going to be, in the next few weeks, going into a lot of detail about spiritual beings, who they are, how they interact with the world, uh, what do they mean to us as Christians. But today I want to offer you just a quick summary so that it can anchor you into some doctrinal truth so you don't kind of get weirded out as we go along, right? I, I want you to stay centered in some basic ideas about angels and demons. Um, I created a list here of 10 quick facts about angels and demons. I know that sounds like a lot, but trust me, a week ago, this list was 30. So bear with me. This is reduced. Okay, this is as brief as I could get it. Here are 10 quick facts about angels and demons revealed by Scripture that I think are important for us to remember. Okay. Spiritual beings are bodiless spirits created by God with intelligence and free will who can carry God's messages to humans, can assume bodies as we assume a costume, are capable of influencing our thoughts and our imaginations, though they are not permitted to violate our free will. There are many different types of angelic beings, and some of these beings have rebelled against God and now actively work against the good of human beings. Okay. I do not have time today to go into all 10 of those facts and kind of offer more in-depth explanations. We'll have time in the coming weeks, but I do want to highlight just three of them right there. The first fact that they're bodiless spirits, uh, and the sixth fact that they can assume bodies as they assume a costume. And then finally, that there are many different types of angelic beings. Those three, I want to just explain really quickly. Number one, so they're bodiless spirits. This is important for us to remember that angelic beings do not have anything physical about them. Therefore, questions like, what do angels look like, or what do demons look like, is not the right question. They don't look like anything. You can't see what is not physical, right? So it, it, there is no sense of like, well, this is what angels have to look like or what demons have to look like, and any depiction otherwise is wrong. No. Instead, what we see in Scripture is that angels do appear to people and demons do appear to people 
by taking certain physical forms. They take forms in order to appear, even if that's not what they actually look like. And this is why we get all those weird images throughout history of like devils with horns and pitchforks and the babies flying around, you know? All of that is not something that's necessarily uh, uh, a fact about how they look in real life, but it's metaphorical imagery that's trying to reveal something about the nature of those spiritual beings. So when you see depictions in the Bible, and, and they're beautiful depictions, we'll talk about them, of, of angels with a hundred eyes and ten wings, or, or concentric wheels wheeling into one another, kind of like our lights up here. When you see those images, you have to understand the literary nature of it, that this is something that the angels are taking on a certain form to reveal something about their nature to the people that they're being revealed to. Okay? Uh, all right, so... Final thing there is that there's many different types of angelic beings. Again, we'll be going into more detail about this. But there are not just simply angels and demons revealed in Scripture, but many, many, many different types and ranks that have different positions in the kingdom of heaven and different roles to play throughout the history of the church and of the Bible. Other than this, I really just want to highlight that angels and demons have played a pivotal role in every single happenstance in biblical history and in human history in general. Every single one. When we look at the Bible, we see that angels surrounded the life of Abraham, the first of God's chosen people. They stopped him from making a human sacrifice of his son Isaac. They came to Jacob, his grandson, in the desert on a ladder, back and forth like 18-wheelers on that busy highway to heaven. One of these angels came to a teenage Jewish girl as an ambassador of her creator and meekly asked her permission in his name to use her womb as his door into our world. And because she said yes to this angel, we have Christmas and Easter, and hope of everlasting life. And when our Creator became a small, defenseless little baby, surrounded by smelly sheep and cows, it was angels that exploded over the night sky like a million bright colors in choirs. And when 33 years later, He had to muster up the courage to bear the cross for you and for me, they were there to comfort Him. And when he leapt back into the sky after he had rose again, they reminded his friends who stood gaping up into the sky that he would return and that they better get busy spending the rest of history getting his landing field ready. And when Christ comes again, they will be there blowing the sky in half with their trumpets, taking us home when our Father calls us to put away our toys and enter paradise. Angelic beings have played a massive role in the history of the Bible and in the history of the church and in the history of our civilization. It is to our detriment that we ignore this fact. So I want to go to the third and final point here today. Why should we care? Why should we care as Christians to learn about angels and demons? 
Go back with me to that verse that we read at the beginning of our talk today, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I want to read this one more time, and I want us all to meditate on this scripture. I think it's such a concise teaching about why thinking about angels and demons matters so much. Ephesians 6, chapter 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Church, the reality is every single one of us is involved in a cosmic struggle. Every single one of us is involved in a spiritual war, whether you recognize it or not. In this passage, Paul is trying to catch our attention and tell us, you're in this war. Shouldn't you be equipped? Now, he's obviously using metaphorical language here, right? He's talking about a real war, but it's not a physical war. It is not the things of this world that can help you. In this battle, it's only the things that Christ can give you through the Holy Spirit. What we need to know about this passage, I think, uh, it, there's a lot of things to really unpack. We don't have time to unpack it all. I am not going to do a sermon today, although I think it is a worthy sermon, talking about each of the different pieces of armor and what they represent and how you work with these different attributes of the Spirit. But, but, I want to point out two things today that I think Paul is really trying to teach us. Number one is to recognize that most of the battles that we see in our lives are not only physical, or in his words, of flesh and of blood. When you look around the world, in your own communities, in our country, and you see violence and oppression and genocide and cruelty and licentiousness and sin and corruption, when you see death and sickness all around you, these things are not just physical. There is a spiritual battle going on. And if we are to have any hope as Christians of battling against violence, battling against injustice, battling against sin in our lives, we need to recognize that there are spiritual forces behind those things. If we don't, the battle will never be won. It will never be won. 
The second thing I really want to point out about this that Paul is telling us is something I, I actually discovered this in preparation for this sermon. It's something so fascinating. I didn't know this before. I had heard this passage many times. I didn't know that Paul is actually quoting another passage from the Old Testament. He's quoting a verse from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, as I'm sure many of you know, when he gave his prophecy to the Israelites, he predicted the coming of a Savior that would transform the world. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 15, Isaiah says this, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw this, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, and then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, this is a lot of poetic language that's being used by Isaiah, but the essence of what he's saying is that when God looked at the world and he saw the evil and the corruption and the pain and the misery that plagued us, he recognized that there was no man or woman who could overcome it on their own. I hate to be kind of like an anti-motivational speaker, but all of these crazy things around that are against us, you don't have it in you to take them down. You don't have it in you. You will never overcome the depression in your life or the anxiety or the sin, the addiction. You won't overcome it on your own. You don't have it in you. You don't have the strength. And that's why Isaiah predicts here that God saw all this and so he sent someone who could, his only son. And he came 2,000 years ago. He was born on this earth, lived a sinless life. He reconciled our sin in his death on the cross and then rose again, overcoming the spiritual powers and principalities over this world. And now he invites us to do the very same thing. He says, take my armor. Take my strength and my power upon you every day because you have spiritual battles that you need to fight in your heart, in your home, with your family, in your neighborhood, in your country. There are spiritual battles that need to be won and you can't win them unless you use the tools I have given you. A soldier is only as good as, it, as his tools. Isn't that right? Can you imagine even if like Rambo, the best soldier ever, just went out in his whitey tighties? to go do battle, he's not gonna get very far. Not gonna do anything. You need the equipment to fight this spiritual battle and the only way you can get it is by humbly coming before God and asking the Holy Spirit to give it to you, to give you the strength to overcome the battles in your life. One quick story and then I'm gonna wrap it up. There's a missionary that actually this church supports, and we've supported her for many years. She's an incredible woman. Uh, she lives in Nepal, in Kathmandu. 
She pastors a church there, and uh, I won't say her name because what she's doing in, in Nepal uh, by having a church is actually illegal, and there's a, a large danger that she could be arrested. So I won't say her name, but for the sake of the story, I'll, I'll call her Sarah. Sarah moved to Kathmandu about 30 years ago because she felt like the Lord was putting on her heart a deep passion to intercede on behalf of the poor in that city. She felt a calling to the Nepalese people. She went over there. She didn't really know anybody. She didn't know the language. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, she was able to actually begin a church there. And then she saw something. She saw on the streets of Nepal many, many young children without a home. And there were no orphanages there to take them in. And so she decided to do something about it. Now remember, all of this work that she's doing, it, it, it's illegal. So she had been arrested a few times before, and as she began to bring these children into her home, she built an orphanage and adopted these children and brought them into her home, and she recognized that she could not be arrested again or else the children would be taken away. Many years ago, about eight years ago, Pam was being uh, chased by the police in Nepal. She was running through the jungles, and she fell into a pit of quicksand. I know we don't think about that right here, right? There's no quicksand in Arizona. She fell into a pit of quicksand, and she knew that there were only two things that could happen in that moment. I remember her telling me this when I was there in Nepal visiting her. She said that all she could imagine happening is either she was going to stay silent and sink to the bottom of that quicksand and die, or she would call for help and the police would come and they'd get her out, but she would be arrested and she would lose the orphanage and the children would be back on the streets. So she did the only thing she could do. She, she bowed her head, she closed her eyes, and she just cried out to God. She said, God, I need your help. Send your angels to help me, please. I don't know what to do. And this is one of those miracles that we don't hear very much in America and the West. It's hard for us to even believe it. I, I have to tell you, though, I, I heard her tell this story. I don't think she's lying. She said she closed her eyes and she cried out to God, and she felt something pick her up. And when she opened her eyes, she was 10 feet away from the quicksand sitting on dry ground. She was able to escape to get away, and she's still continuing her work in Nepal to this day. To this day. There are more things in heaven and earth than you could ever dream of in your philosophies. More things. There are spiritual battles that we are locked in every single day. And we need the help of our Father to fight these battles. Would you all stand with me? We're going to enter into a time of prayer and worship, and I want to invite our prayer team to come to the front. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you the opportunity if today you know that you're locked in a spiritual battle, 
spiritual battle where you're contending for things in your own heart, things in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city. I want to give you a chance today to begin to pray through those problems. And we want to have our team here today to pray with you, to ask that God send his angels to protect you, to help you, to give you the armor of God. I'm going to say a quick prayer and then release you into this time where I invite you, I, I plead with you, if you're in that spiritual battle, come to the front. Receive that prayer. Don't leave this place without being prepared. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this world that you have built that is beyond anything we can imagine. We thank you, Lord, for making a way for us that even when we are in battles that we don't have the power to win ourselves, you have promised that you would make a way. We come to you humbly today, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would intervene in our lives. You would be with us. And because you are with us, there is nothing, nothing that can stand against us. Amen. If you would like to receive prayer today, please come to the front.